0: I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than OpenTable. And they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Or call 877-571-9357 and tell them Full Comp sent you. Now here we go.
1: You can't pay people what you paid them just a few years ago. And I don't think you can bamboozle the next generation of young people the way a previous generation was, that these were sort of creative middle-class jobs that they were getting into. The wool's been pulled off, and you're not going to pull the same trick a second time.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Corey Mintz is a failed cook and a successful writer. His latest book, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Know Them and What Comes After, carefully lays out the thesis for why success is so hard to come by in our industry. In today's conversation, we discuss the obstacles within the restaurant business and the practical solutions to overcome them. Like
1: The front door to journalism is journalism school. And then starting out as a general assignment reporter and going and interviewing people who just had a family member killed in a hit and run and doing that for years before you develop any kind of competence or speciality. And the Toronto Star was looking for a restaurant credit because theirs was going on maternity leave and a year long maternity leave. And I was a cook burnt out of that career and having realized the limitations of my skill and, and my Aspirations in that career who had spent a year writing pretty amateur level and I got in that side door. So the way I saw myself was sort of this like, how am I here with all these grownups with a real job and an expense account and also a tremendous amount of power and responsibility? And it wasn't just that I was writing about food or telling people, hey, these are really good pupusas over here, but it's writing restaurant reviews, right? They were sending me out and saying, you write a thing that tells the public is this a good place to eat or not? Or are they doing their jobs or not? And it's a big weight. So there was not really any time for imposter syndrome because between hiring me and my start date was about 48 hours. And they called me and said, She's going into labor, like go and review a restaurant right now. But I've been cooking for years and I've been writing reviews for about a year for a couple sort of a blog and an all weekly. So I had enough experience to know how to do the job. I just jumped in and I remember a meeting, a sort of cabal of food writers for some symposium where there was sort of like a, a side meeting where everyone's like, we're all going to get together and have like a secret off the record talk about our role and responsibility in the industry and at the time i was in this room and it was sort of like a godfather style big rectangular table with everyone sitting around and sort of i'm important am I'm in my own little fiefdom and the thing they were debating was the responsibility of food writers beyond their publications and their audience and specifically they were talking i think about farming and organics and climate change and things that served a public good and there was a sort of debate amongst people about what is our role what is our responsibility to society versus like telling people where to eat and at the time i just sort of sat back and listened to the grown-ups talk i don't think i had anything to say in that meeting but that obviously evolved over time where i saw a responsibility that wasn't being served which was like let's talk about the people making the food and how they're paid and how they're treated.
0: And that's really the direction that your writing took, was it became less about food and beverage and more about the people preparing that food and beverage, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a story I pitched on my first day. And I probably, looking back, I'm grateful that nobody said, go ahead and write that, because it would have done a terrible job of reporting, interviewing, fact-checking, balancing but about five years later, when I was ready to write that story, I did. And then my career and focus just, I didn't see it at the time, but it was a clear grabbing the steering wheel, turning one way really hard and not going down that same path anymore.
0: Yeah, I'm assuming you're talking about the history of food in Canada is the history of colonialism.
1: Well, that came a bit uh, later, but that's what I mean by like, I took a hard left turn. And that, I wrote, that
0: is a hard, hard left turn, sir.
1: Well, certainly more so than this week I'm feeding a monkey. You know, I wrote a column for five years where I would host people in my home for dinner. And it was great. I loved it. And Out of it, I hosted like 300 dinner parties and I wrote a book about dinner parties. And I loved that was like a fun little time in my life, which was also sort of an education. But yeah, once I wrote that story about labor, I wrote a lot more stories about labor and editors started saying, oh, Corey can do, he's more than one trick pony. And I have some, every editor who sort of had some story that they were going, I think this is important. I don't know who's going to write it. They went, oh, look, let's talk about this. I mean, that story came out of a conversation with editors saying, what is Canadian food? Which went down this winding pathway of like, well, we have to talk about the indigenous peoples of Canada and cultural genocide. And how is it that we end up whenever there's a foreign dignitary to Canada, just talking about maple syrup and salmon, like what's the actual <laughs> of our food. Out of that came, a, I don't know, eight or 10,000 word
0: piece that I'm quite proud of. Talk to me about the thesis of that article.
1: Uh, well, it came out of that conversation. Initially, it was almost a sequel to an article I wrote for BuzzFeed. It was sort of asking the question, like, why are there no indigenous restaurants in Canada? At least going back as far as France and, you know, the restaurant and sort of growing every nationality's home cooking into tavern cooking and commercializing it and industrializing it and adapting it and modernize it and commodifying like that whole history overlaps with the same timeline of the history of a cultural genocide in canada where the canadian government sought to extinguish uh, the cultures of indigenous people by forcing people to uh, banishing cultural practices forcing people to give up their languages, and a constant, I'd say, a campaign from the dawn of Canada until now to um, prioritize land use for energy extraction and for the betterment of uh, and satisfaction of settlers and colonists by taking away land and land rights from Indigenous peoples. when. For whom, when you go back far enough, the common threads in a culinary identity are fishing, hunting, foraging. So, when you take away land, you then destroy the adjacent land, you know, force people to go somewhere else that has a different climate, doesn't have the same species to hunt or fish, put a power dam downriver that's going to pollute their land. 150 years later, that's why there aren't a bunch of restaurants that that, that culture is like. Using to express their culinary identity and also like every other ethnic group within a culture, creating value, creating jobs, like creating wealth in addition to a number of other factors and a uh, long answer to your question. But, uh, you know, I tried with that story also to look at people who were swimming upstream, you know, working to bring back traditional food waste. It's an ongoing conversation for me. I think that first article I wrote for BuzzFeed, an editor had a good note. She said, you know, you just kind of referred to cultural genocide in a paragraph. And then you said, and then you can't really yada yada that. I think you need to unpack that for the reader. And I realized I didn't go to college. I should probably do some reading today. And then sort of like a week later, I said, okay, now I'm ready to write this article. So it was a good kick in the pants for me to finally say, "We should probably know what you're talking about when you're talking about the history of the place where you live.
0: That's some heavy shit for an audience that's probably curious to know where the best brunch in the city is, right?
1: Well, it's for a publication called The Walrush, which I think prides itself on wanting to pursue stories that are of value and interest to the country. And I got to write that story because I had a relationship with an editor who said we want to do stories that matter and who also heard me complaining about, I'm thinking of getting out of, like I need a new career because I can't make money doing the kind of stuff I want to do. And I, I don't know, won't or just can't really write the top 10 brunch places. I mean, the editors who assign those things didn't like me, I had alienated them. So the work was drying up and the majority of the available work in terms of here's what people are expecting from food, 95% of that is where to eat, lists of places that you're pointing from the internet and chef profiles and you know what's in this chef's
0: fridge. I think you present some amazing ideas in the book, but what I was faced with while reading the entire thing is this chicken and the egg paradox. To create better restaurants with better ethics, we need better patrons. So who goes first? Are patrons going to get used to doing a little more on their own while paying more simultaneously? Or are we going to get better with the hope that ultimately they'll be able to finance these improved operations?
1: I think we can rock and chew gum at the same time. And I think we have to. I don't think you can wait for customers to wise up, nor can you increase prices across the board in order to pay people fairly, have a reasonable profit margin so that you are saving for a rainy day, so that businesses are robust and sustainable, pay for all the things, including sustainable seafood that you want. You can't do all of that without also educating the customer on why the menu prices are increasing. A monolith that was one of the directions. It was super helpful for my agent in developing the book. I kind of ranted for an hour and a half. And at one point I said something about, well, you know, your family-owned immigrant restaurant operates very differently from your urban chef, award-seeking restaurant, which is very differently from your QSR, which is different from your full service chain. And she was like, stop, these are your chapters. Write me a list of the different restaurant models or genres or whatever you want to call them. And then beneath that, Start making lists of the problems and then beneath that, look at solutions, which was very helpful, which is to say the path forward is not the same for that restaurant in Portland or San Francisco, where they can reliably say our customers who are paying 80 to 150 for a meal and came here because they believe already in sustainable ingredients, they've half bought into a conversation about livable wages in one of the North America's most expensive city. Whereas the cracker barrel, it's a different conversation. Not to insult their clientele, but the strategy we've seen from the big chains in an era where the bottom line, the third rail, one of the third rails in hospitality has always been, yes, we'd love to pay people better, but we'd have to increase menu prices to do that. And if I increase menu prices, then my customers are going to go across the street to your restaurant where you've kept your prices low. And and thus, we prices have stagnated for a generation or so. And what's happening now is everyone's in the same boat. Everyone has to increase menu prices. But not everybody has to
0: do it the same way. How much of ethics do you think is based on profitability? In your research, in your time, in and around the industry, did you see a bunch of wealthy independent restaurateurs out there hoarding money? Or is the more likely scenario that, most restaurateurs aren't making enough to become the employers they'd like to be. So they're just doing the best they can with what they have.
1: I think there's sort of that, I'm going to mangle the quote, but you know, like every happy family is the same and every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And I think it's like, restaurants are so specific. Like they're so idiosyncratic in their management and ownership. Like a common story I came across is Uh, We started this restaurant and got these great reviews or we blew up on social media or whatever it is. We grew and then we opened a second restaurant. With the second restaurant, you saw us paying people better or committing to 100% sustainable seafood or only local grains. The reason is the first restaurant, we had this one partner or these two partners. They didn't share our values and we didn't want to publicly talk about it. Could this not be on the record? But we're not bad mouthing them, but we could not make the financial choices with that restaurant. And it's just as often that you talk to people: "No, I'm a sole proprietor. This is my business. The issue is, my I'm making a three percent profit. There's no room without increasing the menu prices to a level that pushes me into insolvency." There's just the common theme you keep coming back to is that for a long time, prices have been kept so low partly to appease a dining public with a rapidly growing interest in dining out, but always at a sort of deal level, and partly with the tipping model continuing to suppress wages for everyone across the board. But yeah, I think it's a fairly common story. Owners who would like to do better, but they're just looking at the bottom line and going, "Eh, I'm just afraid of what I'll have to raise prices. At the same time, you know, the pandemic sort of, as you say, brought what was an industry sort of understanding into the public awareness and forced people to have to make some changes if for no other reason that there was now dramatically increased competition for workers, right? And so they had to do better. And yet wages are just part of that, right? I understand if you tell me, "Core, there's I got no money in the till to pay people better. What about the less tangibles? What about better working conditions? And here's where we get into, I think, the low-hanging fruit of solutions, the way that every restaurant can and should be looking to modernize, which is let's talk about getting their people, their schedules in advance. I understand the vagaries of booking reservations and how that makes it difficult, but people want to know when they can go like, have a night out with their boyfriend. They can make some kind of life plans in the coming weeks transitioning from that old fear-based management model in which everyone is expected to do perfectly all the time or they get yelled at into actual leadership where people are you know have goals set for them they meet them they're congratulated and given raises or more responsibility actual workplace safety rules enforcement of them and mental health being part of that right because when you're looking at an industry that is the highest rate of addiction in any sector how can you not be treating that seriously? And here's some low-hanging fruit. Anyone industry, if you're listening to this, you know, this has always been a challenge. One of the organizations I looked at the book was, oh, I can't remember the name, but Sacramento Restaurant run by Mulvaney is his last name. Mulvaney is the name of the restaurants, but they instituted this interesting system of like everyone sort of picking a color-coded card and talking about, their mental health at the beginning and the end of the shift. And, and it was a reaction to a, a slew of suicides in the industry in a very short span of time. There's an organization called Not 9 to 5, which was founded by Hassela Viles. And she's a, I hate the term, serial entrepreneur, but she's one of those people. She started several successful businesses, and she ended up segueing into this not-for-profit organization that focuses on mental health. And addiction and hospitality, and they have been designing a curriculum basically for mental health training. Sometime last year they got funding from the Canadian government to basically expand it and make it available online. Uh, It's available in Canada and the States, and I believe it costs like forty or fifty dollars per employee, which that pays for itself right there, at the very least, in terms of showing that you're taking something seriously something that is incredibly serious, right? People who are expected to work noon to midnight or 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. and where it's socially acceptable to during or at the very least after work every day and are exposed to all manners of potential abuse from customers. It's incredibly important to actually have some systems in place for dealing with people who feel stress and paranoia and any other feelings associated with their job. So like there's a variety of stuff people can be doing that isn't about, oh, my labor costs are going to go up 20%. And nobody really has an excuse for not pursuing those avenues.
0: What you're talking about here is exactly what I wanted to talk about on this show, which is I talk to independent restaurateurs all the time and they say, you know, it's impossible to get a dishwasher. And it's because being a dishwasher is a shitty job. But that doesn't mean... They don't want the job if you're able to provide them with the opportunity to work for a great company, which I think is many things. I think it's everything you listed, plus road mapping, how they can get out of that position and into a position that they have dreamed of being in. Ultimately, if a job has the opportunity to become a career and you are a, not just a business, but a company that is providing the support that people need, I think people will begin to look at the industry differently. They'll see a real opportunity here to do better, to get better, and to create a dynamic skill set that will serve them whether they choose to stay in this industry or not.
1: I think the leader to look at there, I'm sure there are other people doing that, but I was fascinated by what Peregrine and Juliet are doing in Boston, or they're just outside of Boston. They they practice open book management. And you know, instead of, or in addition to staff meetings where they talk about one, they have staff meetings where they talk about everything in terms of what's going on in the restaurant from fixing equipment to ordering a case of whatever, cucumbers for pickling. So not only is everyone invested in being aware of like on a holistic level, what goes on the restaurant, but people are getting that education that makes them that much better. So when someone starts as a dishwasher, they know going to learn everything about this business. I'm going to rise from prep cook to line cook to sous to whatever. And as a result, They're one of those restaurants that when I check back with them, along with a bunch of others in the spring of last year, hey, there's a national labor shortage I'm hearing. How are you doing? We have a stack of resumes. People want to work with us. Everyone who was with us before the pandemic is still with us. We did this to create sustainable jobs because sustainable job is one where people can grow
0: in it. Let's go back to patrons for a minute, because I think that the reason that restaurants were so underpriced for so long was because of this unwillingness to have a difficult conversation with someone we need to get money from. How have you seen that conversation evolve? And what are the most successful versions of that conversation that you've seen from the research you've done?
1: When I started work on the book, a big part of it is who cares in terms of I've been writing about food for however many years, and I specifically been writing about a lot of the systemic issues in food for five or six years. And I haven't seen the culture change in that time. If anything, I've seen it get worse. What happened with the pandemic was it changed the nature of that conversation purely by awareness. You know, when I started writing the book, no one had ever heard of a ghost kitchen. Many articles I'd written about the exploitative predatory nature of the third party delivery tech industry and their relationship with restaurants. You know, I would always get these reactions like, wow, that was a really interesting read, but just as many, that can't be true. If they're not good for the industry, they wouldn't be in business. That's the free market. A lot of sort of, that's conspiracy theory, Corey. And the stuff about how cooks are treated, the nature of tipping, the exploitation. you know, just like the abuse that happens in the industry. It was always sort of the reaction to whatever I would write was like, well, I won't eat at that restaurant. And in the spring of 2020, the first one that changed was... The three PD industry. It went from April 2020, order from us to help restaurants. I saw mayors get in on that. You know, the mayor of the city where I live was like, "Order from Uber and and Foodora if you want to help local restaurants." And by the end of May, by the beginning of June, I started seeing the kind of articles that I'd written so many versions over the years, which is these companies take 30 percent from an industry that makes a four to 12 percent profit versions of that stories, but they weren't just in the food sections anymore. They were in the main news sections. And I started to see that conversation bubble up to I have a small child. So my life was now like chatting with people on the playground and oh, what do you do for a living? And I'm working on this book. And instead of me having to sort of go on this long ramble about the delivery companies, people go, yeah, I heard about, that. yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't order from those companies anymore. And not that that Not that that ended the reign of Uber Eats, but the conversation completely changed. Same with the nature of the abuse that goes on in the kitchen, and to a certain degree tipping a little bit. I've been asking restaurateurs lately because one of the things, I came down to the wire in the last end of the book, and I said, I think it's totally reasonable to ask how tips are divided when you go into restaurants. It's the same as you might ask. Where does this pork come from? If they're excited to tell you about this Berkshire pork and it's finished on acorns and how far away the farm is, then what is taboo about asking, what's the cut of the money that I supposedly voluntarily leave on the table, even though it's an obligation? What happens to that 20%? And the surprising thing that I've been hearing over the last year is, A, a slight shift in that cut from the old three to 5% kickback to the back of house to I'm hearing a lot more 70, 30, 60, 40. I was shocked in a few times I asked, people would say 50, 50. I'm not suggesting that's happening industry wide, but five years ago, just those numbers moving at all, sharing more with the kitchen in order so that they could have a livable wage by taking away from the front of house was revoked. Like it was just... If you even talked about it, you'd say you're just talking about it, you're gonna lose your best people. They're gonna go across the street where they can make five hundred cash a night. That started to change. At the same time, the answer to my question was, no, it's not rude to ask that, Corey. It's fine. And in fact, I've already had people asking. You know, I asked several restaurateurs and they said, Yeah, I'm getting people like once a week, someone will ask me about how tips are divided and we'll tell them, you know, here's here's how much we kick back to the back of house. And the follow-up question was, pre-pandemic, how often did anyone ask that question? And the answer was never. Not once in all my years of operation did anyone ever ask that question. I think that's an example that progress is slow, and you can fairly accuse me of being guilty of incrementalism, but it's perceptible. And you can see the public awareness shifting. It won't shift more without more of a push and without more hand-holding. So it has to be a collaboration.
0: Let's talk about that push. How do you see the role of restaurant critics and journalists evolving post-pandemic? How has your view of your job changed?
1: I mean, I've never had a job. I mean, the last time I had a job was 2007 and I was a cook and then I started writing for a living. I'm like, I haven't had a job since and my career, my role has continued to evolve pretty constantly over the years. So I can't say for myself But I was like a restaurant critic. That was my first job in writing, which is crazy, right? I started with the best job there is, but it was also the end days of that genre. The city that I grew up in, Toronto, when I started in 2008, had, I think, five or six full-time restaurant critics at a variety of publications, and now they have zero. Publications like the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle still have remarkable teams, They've got the audience, they've got the investment, and it's fantastic. And a lot of larger American cities still have them. The restaurant critic has been on their way out for a long time for a variety of issues, not just the decline of print media, but also the rise of uh, social media and the sort of diffusion of their ability to have a monopoly on opinion making, which is fine. Like, I loved restaurant criticism. It was my dream job. I got to do it. I wish we still had someone sort of in any major city capable of sort of leading that conversation or having that review that everyone wanted to read on a Saturday and go, wow, what a trashing or I can't wait to eat it in this restaurant. I think the only way forward with those kinds of roles is what we've seen from people like Soleil Ho at the San Francisco Chronicle in making it much more of an expansive role and saying no no, i I can't just tell you if this food is good or not right or if they remembered my drink order took my coat it's about gentrification it's about how people are treated it's about cultural appropriation like all of that has to be incorporated but i remember there was a paper in my town a few years ago their restaurant critic finally left And I think I contacted the editor and I said, like, just in case you were making a short list of people, don't bother. I know I don't need to. You don't need another white guy. You need another guy. And also, like, I think, don't have another critic. Like, we don't need it. Like, we need more actual food reporting. Although I ended up, a few months later, I said, you still haven't picked someone. I actually have an idea. And I went to them and I pitched, like, what if I went and I reviewed restaurants, but I brought, like, an expert along every time? So. We sort of switched up genres a little bit. So I brought like a historian or an anthropologist or someone who knew about that country and their politics. And we sort of just like broadened the scope. And they were like, that's great, Corey. (laughs) This is is great meeting with you. They weren't interested at the time. But I think something you've seen post-pandemic is every newspaper realized, A, there's no for the foreseeable future star rating system for reviews. It would be cruel. While people are packing their food into plastic containers in order to stay alive and continue to employ, and particularly to continue to employ undocumented workers who can't access social benefits, it would be incredibly cruel to go out and review these restaurants and say, no, they're underperforming this week." And you know, a lot of those writers were redeployed to look at labor and hospitality, some of them for the first time. And I think on the whole, the food media did a really good job of sort of almost in a wartime sense saying like, we have a new purpose and let's get to it. I think it remains to be seen how much clawing back of that there will be. There's always a pendulum swing and a gravity that wants to pull people back to the comfort of what they knew after a time of crisis. So in dining, I can see as soon as it's feasible, much like after the Great Recession, we had those few years of what they call the golden age of fine dining or whatever you want to call it in the nose tail trend or movement or whatever. And then by 2013, 14, the economy had rebounded. The stuff, you know, all the stockbrokers had jobs again. They're like, all right, luxury's back. Let's start building $3 million restaurants again and serving caviar and foie gras again. I fear a return to that. And the talk that all of us engaged in, in in 2020 and 2021, which was we cannot go back to the way things were. I fear the gravitational pull that people who were quite happy with the status quo will want to go back with the way things were. But I just don't think it's feasible. If only from a labor perspective, you can't pay people what you paid them just a few years ago and I don't think you can bamboozle the next generation of young people the way a previous generation was that these were sort of creative middle-class jobs that they were getting into. The wool's been pulled off and you're not going to pull the same trick a second time.
0: The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions of how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us?
1: I think it starts with that Orthodoxy and challenging it. There's a lot of rules that are good rules. There's a lot of rules that are about food safety or consistency. I remember you know, starting as a gar chef coming around, he said, You know, you're doing this brunoise of shallots or whatever it was, and they're a little uneven. Picked out one, he said, This one's perfect. I'm going to put this in the top right of your cutting board. Every minute or so, look back at this one just to make sure they all look like that one. That's a good sort of systemic management they like that's a time-worn effective way at teaching people other maxims like the customer is always right can go and that's one that's lived with us for generations and i think has helped breed a lot of the problems that we have in restaurants whether it's the demands of the customers you know to have something off menu to have a seat that isn't available for them to touch the service staff Anywhere in a way that's non-consensual to managers uh, behaving similarly or simply the idea that everyone needs to get everything that they want as soon as possible or have all the options. I think that's part of what has grown the sense of unfairness and unhappiness in the industry. I don't think that America is ever going to become France, nor does it want to. But one of the interesting conversations I had was with Amanda Patika Harris, who uh, teaches management in Paris. And she used to be a restaurant manager in Toronto, which is where I know her from. And she was talking about the culture of just, we started with talking about chain restaurants. I was like, well, you know, what's the chain restaurant saturation in in France? And she started me down this path that included this sort of culture of many more small restaurants with 20 seats, a 10-item menu, two people in the kitchen, and two in the front. And just that specific nature, changing the relationship with customers, changing the the relationship with diners or with workers. You know, the workers are able to get their prep done and execute service without working a 12 to 14 hour day because there aren't a million things on the menu because each thing doesn't have 18 different garnishes and sauces and doesn't need to be applied with tweezers. And there's a much more approachable price point for the diner as well because we're not boring labor and costly ingredients into it but at the same time it's a culture where diners are not demanding that everything be done on the sort of amazon schedule of like two minutes is two minutes too long right which is where you get the famous you know american going to a restaurant in france and going the service was terrible we waited i don't know how any amount of time uh, which is inconceivable so i don't think you know any more than i don't know if you remember the um that effort to make tapas happen in the early 2000s. And you can put food on small plates, but you can't make a whole neighborhood of your city start going out to dinner at 10 o'clock. Some things translate and some things don't, but I think there's a path for individual operators. I think there's a path forward, independence, you know, like separate from a whole industry-wide cultural shift to say, here's a better way to run a restaurant, particularly given... What was happening even pre-pandemic was, you know, the reaction to a labor shortage from 2015 to 2019 was chefs and restaurateurs who had always been part of and wanted to be part of full service, little urban restaurant, 20 to 50 seat, full service dining with really cool Mm -hmm. menus were going, I'm going to open a chicken sandwich place because... I know food. I know labor costs. I know how to run a business. I know marketing. And I know the only path to profitability is, uh, is choosing a model that has a lower labor cost and also can depend on less experienced people in the kitchen because I keep losing all my best people. I think if you're looking to reverse that trend, then the path is like just for a simpler
0: form of dining. That's Corey Mintz. Be sure to pick up his book, The Next Supper, Wherever You Buy Book. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.